Lord, we ask for your blessing among us today. Father, I would ask that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, however we may have entered this place, however those who are joining us online started this broadcast, Lord, we pray that right now you would meet us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit among us, God. You do what only you can do among us, and you do what you please to do among us, Father. So we ask and invite the work of the Holy Spirit to be present in us. May you be our teacher through the power of your Spirit as we study your Word. And Lord, that's not only a prayer that we have for us, it's a prayer that we ask for the people of the nations of the world. Lord, I do pray for our mission team in Malawi as they join Dave and Catherine Hodge in the work there. I do ask that you would give them the fullness of the Spirit and provide everything they need. We pray that Jesus would show up over and over and over again to that team and glorify your name and advance your mission. So Lord, we look forward to hearing back from them of how you use these days in their life to spread the good news about Jesus, the goodness of Jesus Christ to the people of Malawi. And Lord, we certainly pray for the people in Israel today. Father, that whole region we know is a place of deep historical significance, not only in our history past, but our history future. Jesus is coming again, and that little plot of land is going to play a very big part in the history of this world. And today we ask for the peace of Israel. Lord, would you guard the innocent men, women, and children who are all around this conflict? We know that there are um, no real clear, easy lines for people to draw in a place so concentrated and so mixed and mingled. And Lord, we, we pray for your grace in it. Lord, give leaders wisdom and skill who are having to make some of the most agonizing decisions that world leaders could ever make. And so, Lord, we pray for the peace of Israel. We pray for the support of that nation. And Lord, we ask that you would make the gospel known in that whole region. Father, we know there are men, women, and children who are serving as missionaries and as brothers and sisters in Christ all around that area. And we pray that you would fill them as your people with your Holy Spirit's power to be your witnesses to the goodness of Jesus in dark and difficult days. And so, Lord, in a broken world as a broken people, we thank you that we have Jesus and that he's more than enough for all that we need. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter 9? Mark chapter 9, as we re enter our verse by verse study of the Gospel of Mark, we'll just pick up where we left off in our last passage of study, Mark chapter 9. We'll be going to verse 30 in just a second. If you take any 10 chickens, any 10 chickens, and you put them together in a pen and you throw some chicken feed, on the ground in no time at all, you'll see an amazing phenomenon take place. Those 10 chickens, which may have never been together before, through a series of skirmishes, will begin to establish a hierarchy based on dominance. It's a, it's a phrase that we've come to know popularly as the pecking order. You ever heard of that? But that's where it comes from. That hierarchy is established so that the number one chicken will be identified for all the other chickens, and then the number two chicken, and the number three chicken, all the way down to the number 10 chicken, which I love the number 10 chicken meal at Chick-fil-A, but that's another story entirely. 
Well, there's a lot of stake for the chickens in this little dance of dominance because the chickens will interact with one another in ways that are all about that pecking order. As a matter of fact, they're going to peck at the other chickens below them in the order. That means that the number one chicken is never harassed and occupies the best place in the chicken world. It means that whenever the number one chicken gets frustrated, it just takes out its frustration on the number two chicken which then has to take it from the number one chicken, but then turns around and takes out its frustrations on the number three chicken, all the way down to the number 10 chicken, which lives a very miserable life, always being pecked at with no one to peck. And some of y'all know how that feeling. And that, 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 that pecking order phenomenon is not unique to chickens. It happens everywhere, all the time, at your work, at school, at class reunions for school, at family reunions and dinners, even at church. You don't need me to tell you this, but just like chickens, humans have a way of getting their feathers ruffled and having a tendency to scratch around and establish our place in order. We're constantly organizing ourselves into little groups based on our pecking order, based on how big our house is or how nice our clothes are, what kind of car we drive or how many important people that we know, how influential our job is, how recognizable we are as a member of the community, how long we've been a member of the church. But listen, as you study the Bible, it won't take you long to figure out That Jesus Christ spent his entire ministry basically ripping apart the foundations of this world's pecking order. He is God in the flesh, and yet he was born in a lowly stable. He sat on the throne of heaven itself for eternity past, and yet he had no place to call his home here on earth. Jesus entered this broken world with its messed up pecking orders and redefined what it means to be great, truly great, and live a truly great life on this earth. And that's what our passage is all about this morning. As we continue this study on the gospel of Mark, what we will see is that Jesus gets alone with his disciples and he teaches them about what it means to be truly great in the eyes of God. And so if you want to live a life that Jesus says is a truly great life. Listen up. Don't fall asleep. Listen to the words of Christ. And let's start in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called twelve. And and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God for us this morning. And in those opening verses that we read, our text begins with Jesus traveling alone with his disciples. They're on a road trip, okay? And verse 31 tells us that one of the reasons he wanted to be alone and away from the crowd and just with his disciples is he wanted to spend some time teaching them some important lessons. But the first thing that Jesus tells them is a lesson he's already taught them. He tells them that he's going to die, and after he dies, he is going to rise again from the dead. And then in verse 32, it says that the disciples, even hearing this lesson for the second time, still didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Now, they had no reason to be afraid to ask Jesus about it. It wasn't like he was a curmudgeon who would bite their heads off if they asked a question. It's not that at all. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us, but... It's possible that in their pride, having already heard Jesus say this, they don't want to admit their ignorance and show just how slow they are on the uptake. But whatever the reason is, they don't want to talk about it. So they basically just drop the subject entirely. But there is something these guys are interested and eager to talk about. And this thing they want to talk about actually becomes the catalyst for everything else that Jesus teaches them. In this passage and in this time that he set died for helping them learn the lessons they need to learn. Look at verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love the picture that Mark paints here. This feels like one of my family road trips when I was growing up. Mom and dad and us five boys would all pile into dad's mid-80s Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra, which you may not know this, but that's a mid-sized sedan that I don't even know had seatbelts at all. It was the mid-80s after all, but only sat five people. Well, we had five kids in the back seat, right? And so immediately as we would get into the car, there was this phenomenon that would take place. You might call it a pecking order. We had to decide where are the five boys going to sit in a back seat that only has three seats. And so the pecking order began. The oldest, Tony, he always got a window seat. He was the oldest and the strongest, by the way. And he chose the one behind mom because her seat would be Further up, he'd have more leg room. And then Todd, the second oldest, would get the other window seat. Then Travis, right behind him, he'd sit in the middle with his feet on the hump. You guys know that one, right? Little Tate, the baby of the family, he got coddled because he was small. And they let him sit in the window behind the back seat. You guys remember how there'd be that shelf back there? Well, there would Tate be laying across the window. And, and I guess you're wondering, where'd old Titus get to sit, Right? Well, I got to lay across the floorboard with the, with the hump right there in the middle. I still am dealing with lumbar pain from this road trip we would take as a child. There I'd sit, and when you lay on the floorboard, you realize what that means. You become the floorboard for the other people, right? So the hierarchy of the spaces where we would be would always settle in, and then you know what would happen next. Immediately, we'd turn the corner, get out of the house, and what would happen? The five boys would start arguing, right? And we'd have the audacity. Here's the argument that always break out. You're in my space, man. Dude, there's five of us in a mid-sized sedan in the back seat. We're all in each other's space, right? There is no space. And we'd be arguing, you're in my space, bro. You're in my space, man. And then you know what dad would do, right? 
What are you guys arguing about back there? Nothing. <laughs> right? It's always n- nothing. I don't know why we thought that he couldn't hear us. He was 18 inches away from us. He heard the whole thing. Why did we say nothing? And then, of course, there was the second phase that dad would break into, right? Which was this. Don't make, don't you dare, right? And I am convinced that God limited a man's rotator cuff to only be able to go that. He knew they'll kill him. The dads will kill the kids on road trips. Make it stop right around his arm, his wife's right there. Then the third one, right? Don't, do not make me pull this car over. Because the deal is in the 80s, dad pulled that car over. He just spanked us on the side of the road. And then other dads would drive by, honk their horns. Good job, dad. It's America. Honk, honk. Yeah, honk for corporal discipline. You know, and then you're out there. Woo, this is great. So that's how we did it our house. What are you doing, dad? What are you doing? What are you guys arguing about back there? And here you got, right? Jesus going on this road trip. Want to spend some time with his disciples? Let's break away from the crowd while they do. Turn into five green boys in the back seat. Arguing about what? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's, what's the packing order? What's going on here? They've been arguing because they know. They know Jesus is setting up a kingdom and all they care about, not that he's going to die or even that he'll be raised again. It's who's going to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom? Who's going to have the most notoriety? Who's going to have the most power? Who's going to be the one that is secretary of state right under Jesus? Who's the greatest? And Jesus had overheard the whole thing, right? He was right there in the front seat. And since he knew what he wanted to teach them and had already begun actually preparing this conversation with what he said. We'll look at that in just a second. He asked them, what were you guys talking about? And then they don't answer. And he proves, I knew what you were talking about. I wanted you to confess. And he says, here's what greatness means. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he, he must be last of all. And servant of all. You guys see what Jesus is doing here? He's revealing that true greatness is basically the exact opposite of what our world says it is. He literally says that the person who is considered last in importance in the eyes of our world is first in terms of God's kingdom. Now, just don't misunderstand this. Don't read too much into this. He isn't trying to establish a new pecking order as if the disciples should take his new definition and then start arguing all over again about who's the greatest. He's not saying that. What's he saying? He's essentially saying this. The only way to truly be great is to stop trying to be great the way our world defines greatness. You have to stop. You have to die. You have to lay down what this world says is truly great in order to actually be great in the kingdom. The only way to be great is to stop living to make yourself great in the eyes of this world or the people around you. And what does he say next? And become the servant of all. And that's actually the big idea for this morning. Greatness comes through service. Greatness, if you want your life to be great the way that Jesus says your life can be great, then this is the only way that it happens. Greatness comes through service. It's not defined or determined by your bank account. 
your career, where this world would rank you in terms of value or importance. You may never be rich. You may never be famous. You may never sit at a table with influential people. You may never have your name written down in history. But hear what Jesus is telling all of us in this room today. Your life can instantaneously become the life of a truly great person. Jesus says, greatness comes through service. Every one of us has the capacity for greatness because every one of us has the opportunity to serve those around us. Listen, friend, greatness comes through service. That's the lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples and in in turn us. And in the time we have left, here's what I want us to do. I want to go back through our text and I want to show you three defining characteristics that mark a great servant in God's kingdom. And here's the first one. A great servant sacrifices. A great servant sacrifices. Look back at verse 31. He was teaching his disciples So he's already got them alone on the road, on this road trip, and he teaches them the first lesson. And here's what he says to them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Now, listen, don't miss what's going on here. It was just a few verses ago in chapter 9 that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember what happened there? His glory was miraculously unveiled in an unmistakable way. His face, it says, shone. It was as radiant as the sun itself. And the voice of God the Father thundered down from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. And Peter and James and John, the three who were there, they were so overwhelmed by the glory and the greatness of Jesus that they fell down on their faces before him. Here's here's the reality. At the Mount of Transfiguration, what's becoming unmistakably clear is that no one on earth is greater than Jesus. No one in history, not Moses or Elijah or any saint from the Old Testament, is greater than Jesus. And so we've already gotten this view. Jesus is the greatest And as he leads his disciples away from that mountain, revealing his glory and greatness, he wants to teach them something. And he tells them what the greatest person who has ever lived, how that person will choose to live his life. And what is it? He will walk from that mountain of glory to a hill with a cross where he will sacrifice his life for the sins of mankind. The phrase Jesus actually uses, he says, the son of man, you can see it there in verse 31, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. That word delivered doesn't mean rescued or saved. It means to be handed over or given away. And without being disrespectful or too common, it's the, it's the way we use the word to deliver a pizza, right? That pizza's not getting rescued. Not when it's coming to my house, that pizza's getting eaten, right? It's being handed over. And that's what that word delivered means. It's handed over. Jesus was given away. And the question becomes, who gave Jesus away? Well, there are some people who think that's a reference to Judas betraying him, handing him over. I don't think that's what Jesus is actually referring to. Because he is on his way to the cross himself of his own volition. I believe he's referring to the choice that he is making out of love to give himself away as a sacrifice for people. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10 verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes it, talking about his life, 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. You see it there? Jesus says, I choose to lay my life down. I choose to hand my life over. So get this. The greatest person who's ever lived demonstrated his greatness. How? Through sacrifice as an act of service for those in this world whom he loved. That's exactly actually what he says in Mark chapter 10, our, our next chapter of study. Verse 10, or verse 45 of chapter 10, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, a great servant, and there is no greater servant than Jesus. Great servants sacrifice. And listen to the teaching of the Word of God. If you're going to be a great servant, make no mistake about it. If you're going to serve like Jesus, you are going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give up things that are rightfully yours in order to meet the needs of others. You have to give up your time, your hobbies, your leisure. You have to give up your way of doing things. Can I say that one again? You're going to have to give up your way of doing things. Because service requires sacrifice. And as I was praying over this and thinking, God, how should we press this in? How should we think about this? Rather than, rather than challenging you just to be more sacrificial, I just want to celebrate. I want to celebrate as one of your pastors that we are in a room filled with people who model the kind of service Jesus is talking about here every single day of your lives. This room is filled with moms who sacrifice their time and energy to meet the needs of their children. And they run on the Holy Spirit and coffee. That's how they do it. They sacrifice their lives. Dads who sacrifice their career advancements or their hobbies to put their families before themselves. This room is filled with grandparents who sacrifice their retirement and leisure years to see to it that their grandchildren have opportunities they could never have imagined for themselves. Every single week on this campus, hundreds of volunteers give up countless hours that they could spend doing other things like hobbies and golfing, fishing, whatever else, or just resting alone at home to do things that meet the needs of the people in this community. Hundreds of people give their lives to feed the neediest people in our community through House of Hope every single week. Our deacons give their lives away to care for our widows through the widow ministry of our church every single week. Nearly 100 employees of Merritt Island Christian School have chosen to forego a better paycheck at another organization so they can live their lives to teach children about Jesus. An army of servants showed up this morning to pick us up on golf carts and prepare classrooms and rock babies in our nursery and teach teenagers the Bible. Yesterday, a team of servants poured over my sermon notes, God bless their soul, so that they could be prepared to translate this sermon in real time into Spanish while I preach, so that our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters can hear the word of God in their heart language. Right now, even in this moment, there's a team of people up in a room, way above at the top of this, this room. There's some of them there that are teenagers, and they're working hard behind computers to broadcast this service so that hundreds of people in this community, literally around the world, who can't be here in person can join us in spirit. And guess what, friends? 
Jesus sees it all. This world may not notice. Jesus sees it all. Mom, dad, grandparent, servant of the body of Christ. Jesus sees it all. It may not garner headlines or the attention of our community, but do you know what Jesus has to say about it? He says, that's great. Think about that. The Lord of all creation, looking at us in our obscurity, serving in our smallness, sacrificing little things that no one notices, sees those things. And what does he says? He says, that is great. There's a point to Washington, D.C. and says, that is great. Maybe some of them, but he points to the men, women, and children in his name who sacrifice their day-to-day lives in countless acts of service that require sacrifice. And I know there are some of you who are being stirred to serve, but you've been hesitant. Whether it's serving in your community or serving as part of this church family. Because here's what you know. You know it's going to cost you to say yes to service. You're going to have to give something up. Maybe a night of the week or a morning of the week or an hour here or there. Or maybe it's going to require a total change of your schedule and the Spirit is stirring you and you're hesitant. Ten, friends, I want to encourage you. Hear and answer the call of Jesus. Stop living and chasing the good life so that you can live a great one. Lay your life down in sacrifice Of service to others. A great servant sacrifices. The second thing we see is this though. A great servant is selfless. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Stop right there. In the Greco-Roman world, children were seen as really insignificant members of society. It's not that they weren't loved by their families. It was just that they were non-contributors. And in a world that needed all hands on deck just to survive, non-contributors were really low on the totem pole. As a matter of fact, they would have been at the very bottom of the pecking order because they needed everything done for them and couldn't do anything in return for you, right? So they're at the bottom of the pecking order. And as Jesus is teaching them this lesson, he takes a small child and he places that child in the center of the room and he actually holds the child in his arms and he gives them a picture of the kind of servant he's calling us to be. And he's saying it's someone who serves others without expecting anything in return. Guys, this is a powerful insight because it helps even further the idea of sacrifice. That Jesus considers great living and great serving to be the kind of service that gives to serve and doesn't give to get. You guys know that. There's a kind of service that looks like service on the outside, but on the inside it's rotten to its core. That there are kinds of service acts that look like sacrifice, But it's really the heart of someone who just believes that whatever they're giving up in that moment is going to result in something beneficial for itself in the long run. That kind of sacrifice isn't sacrifice at all, and it definitely isn't great service. It's called self-service. Let me give you a couple of examples. It's what happens when an employee volunteers for the job that no one wants with the hope 
that she could score a few points with the boss and get a promotion down the road. You know what I'm talking about? It's what happens when a teenager cleans his room out of the blue, hoping he can score a few points with mom and dad to get the latest video game when he asks them the next time. It's what happens when a husband suspiciously makes the bed and does the dishes, hoping he could score a few points with his wife so she'll be okay when he asks to go golfing the next Guys, that's called giving to get. And that's not great service. You know what it is? It's manipulation. And that's the way the world does it. Jesus says that's not how great servants in the kingdom serve. They don't only sacrifice by giving things away. They sacrifice from a heart that's selfless. They serve to meet the needs of others out of love, not greed. Great service cares for single moms and widows and orphans. It gives to the homeless and the helpless. It reaches out to those who have nothing to offer in return. And Jesus says, listen, when we serve people who have nothing to offer in return, he says, it's as though you're receiving me. And not just me, but him who sent me. You're caring for me. You're embracing me. You're embracing the Father when you give and serve those who cannot give in return to you. And I can't help but wonder how long the list of volunteers would be for our children's ministry if we really believe that caring for kids and others who cannot give us anything in return was like loving on Jesus himself. God bless those people who right now are in those rooms chasing around all your kids, loving them in the name of Jesus in by Jesus' standard, embracing Christ in the act. I love the thought of those people sitting in those rockers, rocking babies while we're in this room, being rocked to sleep by the gentle tones of your pastor. And Jesus sees that person holding that baby in their arms. And it's as though they are holding Jesus himself. You're receiving me. So let me ask you this. What would change about the way that you live in your home or the way you do your work at your job or the way you even do life in this church family if you really believed that every act of selfless service was an expression of love for Jesus himself in that act. Great servants are selfless. Number three, a great servant sees Jesus as supreme. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name will be, will, will be soon afterward to speak evil in me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Okay, so one of the really cool things about the disciples that Jesus chose is that they're as stupid as us. All right, that's a really cool way to identify with the Bible. Because Jesus has just talked about being the kind of selfless servant that receives others without putting yourself at the center of it all. And he's no sooner finished that statement than John speaks up and he says this, Hey, Jesus, 
Speaking of receiving other people, there was this time you don't know about when you weren't around. We saw a guy casting out demons in your name. We tried to shut him down, Jesus. Was that great service? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about, John? Have you been hanging around Peter too much? You're coming up with all kinds of harebrained schemes. These guys are amazing. What's going on here? Well, the key to understanding this exchange is to notice what John emphasizes and what Jesus emphasizes. Why did they try to shut the guy down? Verse 38 tells us, John says it was because he was not following, fill in the blank, us. Right? He was not following us. So just think about what he's saying there. They're telling Jesus about it because Jesus wasn't there. Right? So do your math about the English language. I know I just confused two subjects. Just This adds up. Jesus wasn't there. So when he says us in that verse, he's talking about the disciples without Jesus. They were following us. And then Jesus redirects his attention. Verse 39, he points out that the guy was actually working in Jesus' name. And he says that's a good thing. Verse 40, he says that the one who's not against us is for us. And here when Jesus uses the word us, he's using it in a way that has to include him because he's now part of the us. In other words, he's saying the us should always center around Jesus and not us. Here's what I believe is going on here. He's highlighting the fact that the disciples had made their work about themselves. And they didn't like this guy because he wasn't following them even though he was following Jesus. He wasn't doing what they wanted him to do even though he may have been doing what Jesus wanted him to do. Does that sound like anybody you've ever met before? He's not following me. I don't care what he has to say about Jesus. He's not doing it the way I want him to do it. You ever ever felt that way? And here's what Jesus is saying, guys. I'm the one who's supreme. The, the, The one you want people to get to know. I'm the Savior. I'm the Son of God. I'm the only one who can save. I'm the only one who can heal. I am the one that you are called to tell other people about. Jesus is supreme. He's the one we are called to promote. He's the one that we want to be glorified. That's why he says what he says in verse 41. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ... Not because you're doing life their way. Not because they're signing on to what it is that you subscribe to other than Jesus. But because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What's the motive for giving this water? Jesus is the motive. He's at the center of this service. And Jesus says, that's the kind of service I will reward. And you'll not lose that reward. When your life is all about me and your service is all about me. You can live selfless because it's not about you. And you can sacrifice because it's not about you. And when your life is about me, your service becomes pure and your life becomes great. He's saying the goal of great service is that Jesus would be supreme. And just think about how that would change the way you serve. Husband and wives, listen, what would it look like if starting today you decided to serve your spouse with one primary goal? And it was that they would love Jesus 
even more than they love you. Parents, what would it look like if you began to serve your children with one primary goal, and it was this, that they would love Jesus even more than they love you? What would it look like if you served in this community or this church or at your school or your job with the goal, the primary thing in the center is that people would see Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus above everything else in this world. Great servants see Jesus as supreme. He's the one who matters most. So when we serve people with the desire to love them as though we're loving Jesus, and the hope that in that they would get to know and love Jesus as well, Jesus says, that's true greatness Wanting me to be known and not wanting to be known yourself. Wanting me to be followed and not you being followed yourself. He sees a life of selflessness and sacrifice and seeing Jesus as supreme. And Jesus says, that's great. When I was studying to become a pastor, all I wanted at the very beginning, the only thing I knew that God had stirred in my heart is I wanted to preach. I would envision a room like this and people like y'all, and I would preach for hours and hours and hours, and you'd love it in my imagination. (laughs) For years, I was in a a time of preparation, and I wasn't preaching, because pastors have discernment, and they know better than to ask a guy like me who hasn't been trained to preach in their pulpits. So I sat and studied and served behind the scenes. And one of the ways that I served in my local church was I would, I would sing in the choir and we would practice before the Sunday evening service. And I would be up in the choir loft practicing before the service. And as I'm up there practicing, like I did on almost every occasion that I was in a setting like this, I'm looking out over the auditorium that was shaped a lot like this. And I'm only, I'm only going through the motions of, of the choir because I really can't sing that well, but I'm imagining what it would be like when I got a chance to actually preach, when somebody would actually show up and I get a chance to preach, and I'm just envisioning those, those great days that I'm going to be able to preach. And I'm getting anxious, and I'm, I'm getting like really excited about it. And it's taken years and years and years. As a matter of fact, from the time that I surrendered to preach to the time that I actually became a preacher, it was like six, uh, 13 years, 14 years. So I had a long time. And in that setting, I remember... As I'm thinking, it will be great when I can preach. In the back of the room, walked an old man. You've never heard of his name. His name's Park Owens. He was almost 90 years old at the time. He could barely walk without stopping every 20 feet. And he walked in the back of the sanctuary, and I realized he does this every week. I see him do this every week. He would show up about 30 minutes early, and he would take a stack of offering plates and he'd put them in a wheelchair and he would walk around the auditorium and it would take him about 20 minutes just to set down the offering plates in the places that they belonged. And every now and then he'd have to sit down because he would get winded and then he'd stand back up and he'd put those offering plates back down and only people that saw it just happened to be there singing in the choir, practicing for that. And I remember looking out and I was thinking, it will be great when I can stand and all of the people are there and I get to preach. And here came Park Owens in the Holy Spirit. I said to my heart, Titus, Do you want to know what I think is great? I think it's great 
When a guy that nobody knows who will be done with his service before anyone else arrives will have had his own worship service. By walking slowly around this room and laying out those offering plates and no one will give it a thought where they came from or how they got there. But I see and I know and I love because it took his time and his energy at 90. I can't imagine what it took for him to prep that and work that. It took a selflessness that didn't care to be applauded. All he wanted was that in the time when the people gathered to hear about Jesus, what they had was no distraction but to be able to focus on Jesus. He didn't want them having to scurry around. How do we, how do we give our offering as worship? And let's find some place. He wanted those to be where they needed so there was no distraction and all eyes on Jesus. Jesus and I had the Holy Spirit press in my heart, Titus, you think standing up and preaching to people is great. I'm telling you what greatness is. Greatness is humility, laying down your life when no one sees and no one knows but me and doing that act out of love and care for me, sacrificially, selflessly, and for the supremacy of Christ. Do you want to know a great life? That's a great life. And here's the good news for you. No matter how you walked in today, you can leave this morning living a great life in the eyes of God. How? By laying your life down and being a servant. And listen, I hope that you heard in the echoes of every description, the description of the greatest servant of them all. Who has sacrificed more than Jesus? Who has been more selfless than Jesus? Who is more supreme than Jesus? And the reality is for you to be a servant like Jesus means you need Jesus. You can't do this, guys. We can't do this. Only Jesus can free us from the sin that keeps us from serving others the way we should. Only Jesus can free us from the pride and the self-centeredness that keeps us from stepping in to what Christ has called us to be. Only Jesus can give us a new heart and empower us to live like the greatest servant of them all. Guys, the only way that we could be great servants who sacrifice and are selfless and see Jesus as supreme, the only way that we could do that is as the greatest servant serves through us. We need Jesus to be Jesus in us. And do you want the good news of the gospel? We don't just need Jesus. We have him. As a matter of fact, that brings us to the Lord's Supper. If you guys would take out those elements, we want to end by focusing on the Lord's Supper. And what we'll be doing in these moments, I hope isn't lost on us. We'll be taking these elements that represent the body and the blood, the person and life of Jesus Christ. And we'll literally be taking them into us. Because the hope of the gospel is not only did Jesus give his life for us on the cross. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus will live his life in us and through us as we trust in him. He will provide not only forgiveness of our sins, but power to live a brand new kind of life. And so as we hear what Jesus says is greatness... A kind of service that resembles Jesus, that lives like Jesus. God forbid that we would say, okay, I'm going to go do that without relying on Jesus to do it in us. And so if you would peel back that first layer, 
exposing the bread and hold that in your hand. This represents the body of Christ. The body of Jesus that was broken for us. And this morning, the, the response would be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you endured in your body the suffering that is the result of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. Thank you for being the sacrifice that enables all of my sacrifices. So would you bow your heads? And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then I would encourage you not to take this element until you've placed your faith even right now in Jesus. Just prayerfully receive the gospel of Jesus, that in the body Jesus died on the cross, suffering in your place to provide the forgiveness of your sins. Call on Jesus to save you. Trust in his death and resurrection. And for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, would you give thanks that because the greatest servant in the history of this world sacrificed his body for you, you are freed from all condemnation. Give thanks right now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that he came in humility to serve us by giving himself as a ransom for many, by suffering and dying as a sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that because Jesus has given himself a sacrifice for our sin, as we trust in Jesus, we'll never have to pay for our sin. It was paid at the cross. So we thank you for Jesus today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take the bread with me? And would you peel back that next layer and expose the juice? This juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a new covenant that he says is in his blood. It's a new agreement that he establishes between us and God. And that agreement is that God will relate to us not on the basis of our work, but on the basis of Jesus' work. That God will receive us, that God will enable us, that God will approve of us, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ's goodness. And not because of our power, but because of Christ's power through us. And so as we take this cup, we are grateful for the forgiveness of our sin that is provided through the shed blood of Jesus. But we're also thankful for the new agreement between us and God. That it's not about us working for God. It's about Jesus working in and through us. And that's how we're pleasing. That's how we're acceptable. That's how we live the kind of life that Jesus describes. So would you bow your heads and give thanks for the new agreement, the new covenant that Christ will live in his people. By his power, we are pleasing. By his power, we're enabled. Will you thank Jesus for his new covenant? Father, I want to thank you that the new agreement that Jesus established through his life, death, and resurrection is one that's based on his work and not our own. Lord, I thank you that so much so that even our work 
is enabled and empowered by Christ. And I pray that on this morning in particular, you would stir our hearts to believe it and live like we believe it. That in order to live out what it is to be a great servant and be great in the eyes of the kingdom, that we need Jesus to live in us. And we don't just need him, we have him because of the new covenant in his blood. So Holy Spirit, seal those truths in our heart and give us thankfulness as we respond to the gospel of Christ. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus and the new covenant it brings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.